are you doing today, Crossing Church? Really? <laughs> All right. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be with the people of the Lord across all of our locations, and we welcome all of our locations all across this region. We also welcome everyone that's inside and online. So thankful for each and every one of you, and it is, it's good to be able to look at your smiling faces. It's beautiful outside, and uh, beautiful, even more beautiful inside, because all of us are here together, and we have the opportunity to be in this fellowship together and fellowship with God. That's a great investment. So you remember uh, Easter uh, when we were doing this series, we, we weren't in a series, but we kind of did a one-off called uh, Chasing Shades, and we had those uh, lights up here that uh, everything was monochromatic, and it was like uh, uh, Clayton was going from black and white to color and back to black and white. How many of you remember that? Yeah, it was pretty awesome, uh, that, that effect right? And that was actually supposed to be the part of a series, uh, but we put a different series in between, but we're kind of coming back to that. And so we're in a new series called Chasing Shades, and it's based on exploring uh, a study in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. I don't know how many of you have ever really done a a deep dive into Ecclesiastes. You're probably going, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this or not. So, so why? Why would we do that? Why would we take you to this Old Testament book with this giant name? It's because the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is the all-time grand champion of chasing shades. His name is Solomon. Now, the author in the book, when you read Ecclesiastes, he does not identify himself by name but by his family and by his title. So you can figure out who he is by what he says. And he does it in the first verse. Let's look at it. Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the teacher, son of David, David the king of Israel. So he was a child of David and the king in Jerusalem. There's only one person that fits both of those descriptions, and that's Solomon. So that's how we know who it is, okay? Um, now, who is Solomon? Solomon is the second child that was born to David and Bathsheba. You know that David had multiple wives. And just because, listen, just because the Bible says a person does a certain thing, it doesn't mean that what they did was the right thing. The Bible tells you the truth about people. And, uh, and sometimes people say, well, if it's in the Bible, it must be right. Well, no, it's not right. Uh, and uh, David with Bathsheba is a whole lot of wrong. Uh, and some of you may remember a story uh, about an affair that David had with a woman that he saw taking a bath uh, on a rooftop when he was up on a rooftop, a higher rooftop, and it was actually the wife of one of his best friends. And he has this affair with her, it produces a pregnancy, he wants to cover up the pregnancy. And so he asks his friend through the generals that are out fighting a battle to allow his friend to come back home uh, so that he'll think that the child is his, but he will not dishonor the, his uh, uh, fellow soldiers on the field by even going into his own house and uh, actually living out 
what he had been taught by David. And yet David's trying to cover this, this sin up. And since he can't cover it up by making his friend think that it was his child, he actually puts him, has him put in the place in the battle where he'll, where he'll certainly die. And he dies in battle. And then after he dies in battle, David takes his widow to be his own wife. So no one would know, except for God knew. And a prophet came and tells David what he's done. So try to understand that uh, Solomon doesn't come with the best reputation in his past. The child that was produced from that uh, adulterous relationship died, was stillborn after the affair, after the murder of her husband and the cover-up by King David, Bathsheba. But then she became pregnant a second time, and that second son was Solomon. So that's his, that's his family history. And he was 19 years old when King David died. And then he became the new king of Israel at 19. Now the beginning of Solomon's reign, when you read about it in 1 Kings, it's really marked with a lot of violence, a lot of idolatry, and marrying for political gain. People would marry just to be able to you know, produce more for their own kingdom. And it was also a time when he built a palace for himself, and he began the project of building a temple to God. Now, all of that money had already been procured by his father David, but it's interesting, isn't it, that he decided to build his palace first, and then he would build a temple? Yeah, yeah. And he really wasn't living a, a, a great life as a young king, but it was during the early stage of this reign that this event happens where he does this sacrificing and God speaks to him. You need to read this because this gives you the background you need to stand on to understand what I'm going to be talking about today. The king, that's Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. How many of you like to hear that from God? <laughs> ask for whatever you want. And what would you say? That might be right there your whole sermon. What would you say? Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you. And in many ways he was and righteous and upright in heart. He pursued God. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day, this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. So there's a lot of humility there in that, in that prayer. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart. That's his prayer. To govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not long for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment 
in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you. Listen to this. Nor will there ever be. In other words, there's never been and there will never be anyone as wise as this king. Because that's what God said. Moreover, I'll give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you have, will have no equal among kings. Wow. Wow. So that resulted in Solomon having this uncanny ability to be worldly successful in literally every way a person could be successful. And if you really want to know how successful he was, you need to read 1 Kings 10, 14 to 29. I'm not going to read that for you now, but it's amazing what, what he amassed. Now, there's a website called wealthresult.com, and it lists the top 10 all-time wealthiest people in the world. Now, if you put Elon Musk on that list, and he's the wealthiest man on earth right now, uh, he would pl- presently be between number four and five on that list based on his net worth. But guess who number one is? Number one, all time, all cultures, richest man via net worth on that app, Solomon. Solomon's net worth is estimated to be at $2.1 trillion. That's nearly 10 times Elon Musk's present net worth. Wow. Because of this gift that God gave him of wisdom, Solomon was able to have virtually unlimited money. I mean, he used gold for mortar. He had unlimited access to pleasure. He had unlimited power. He had unlimited influence. He could live out every dream, every desire, and every fantasy that anyone could ever imagine. And with all of that, wouldn't you think that he'd be happy or satisfied? And then we read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Well, we're only two verses in. Look what it says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a man who is fulfilled? Because this is written later in his life. Or does this sound like a man who's frustrated and unfulfilled? You spend some time in this book with me, and you'll find a man who is lost, who is cynical, who is virtually hopeless, a man full of answers, but missing the most important one. In my opinion, a man more to be pitied than to be applauded. Why? Because his search was confined to the lower story. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, let me explain the difference between the lower story and the upper story. The lower story is the place where you and I live. 
It's where we deal with life. It's where we grind it out. It's where you have to pay the bills at the end of the month. It's where you go to the grocery store. It's where you, you experience the challenges and, and the, the pain and the difficulty and the joys of this life. That's the lower story. But there's also the upper story. The upper story is the place that God calls you to. It's the place where he doesn't do you harm but good. It's where you find the purpose and the plan for your life that he has provided for you. It's where that relationship is. That's the upper story. And that's why we need to understand that Solomon's search was confined to the lower story. Look at Ecclesiastes 1, 3 through 7. It says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. And hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. And round and round it goes ever returning on its course. Streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Now the phrase that really struck me in that passage is that part in verse 6 where it goes round and round it goes. And it's true. That's kind of life, isn't it? Made me think about a personal story, okay? Uh, because when I was a little kid, uh, my parents, it was, a cheap, it was a cheap thing to do on the weekend, would, take us, would load us all up and take us in the car to the drive-in theater, okay? I need to see a show of hands at all of our locations. How many of you have personally experienced going to a drive-in theater? Raise up your hands. Okay, a lot of you have. How many of you have never experienced a drive-in theater. Raise your hand if you've never experienced That's so sad. <laughs> it really is. Because drive-in theaters are just great. And there's all many great things that, that we experience at a, you experience at a drive-in theater. First of all, the, the sound of the movie is terrible. Because it's coming out of this little aluminum speaker that you hang in your door. Your window area, right? But you do have surround sound because everybody's got one of those. And some of you that went to the drive-in remember that you didn't sit in your car. You backed up your truck and you put lawn chairs there. How many of you did that? Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to ask how many of you tried to sneak in your friends in the trunk of a car. Because that happened a lot, too. And, you know, I remember the chocolate uh, malts that you would get that were frozen like rock hard. And you start working on the outside with a wooden spoon to try to actually get a bite. And how many of you remember orange push-ups? Oh, where do you get those today? I don't even know, right? So there's lots of great things about drive-in theaters, but the thing that I like the most, at the two drive-in theaters my parents would go, Lafayette Road in Indianapolis and Westlake. Those were the two theaters. Both of them had something up, up front, just underneath the screen that was amazing. I called it a merry-go-round. Some of you might call it a carousel. You know what I'm talking about when I say carousel? Yeah, 
that there's still some of them around. I found out in the green room this week that the one that was at the White Oaks Mall in Springfield is gone now, but they used to have one there, and it was actually a double-decker. Like it had stairs, it had two levels. There's one in St. Louis at the aquarium, and probably if you've ever been to a county fair, you've been able to get on one. Kind of a cheaper version, but you've been able to experience one. So let's just take a ride for a moment. What does that look like? What is it like? This is what it's like right here. This is like riding on a carousel. And just a few things to understand. You, you have all these different animals, and they're on this mechanism that makes you go up and down. And then there are some of these animals or the benches, if you're the lame person that wants to sit on a bench, right? And then there's the center part, and there's the mirrors all the way around to let you see yourself while you're riding, whatever you're riding, and a calliope in the middle that's run on air or steam, right? It has a special sound. And, uh, you know, so some of those characters move, some of them don't. And you buy your ticket, right? And like Solomon says, round and round you go. That's how it works with a carousel. And that's how it works in the lower story. Your life and my life, it's like a carousel. It's like a merry-go-round. It looks so inviting. It sounds so happy. It sounds so fun. And you have these different animals that you can ride and all these different experiences that you can choose from. But eventually, what happens? After you've spit your quarter, your 50 cents, or whatever it is now, five bucks, I don't know, the ride is over. And you have to get off and let somebody else get on the ride. Now, you can go buy another ticket, and you can ride a different animal, but eventually, it'll stop again, and you'll have to get off the ride again. Now, maybe some of you, you're not a merry-go-round person. You're not a carousel person. Maybe you're a Ferris wheel person. You're a total daredevil. You like that idea of being way, way up in the air. You get this incredible view, right? And you have the thrill of being so high. Some of you are just terrified at that. But other of you, you just love that, right? But eventually what happens? You have to come back down, don't you? Hopefully slowly. But you have to come back down and you have to get off the ride. And then there's some of you. You're not Ferris wheel people. You're not carousel people. You're teacups people. And if you're a teacup person, at the end of my sermon, we're going to have an invitation time, and you need to come up and just repent of that. Because, I mean, you're, you're strange. Because you know what a teacup is, right? Teacups are like, uh, they're like round and round squared. So you sit in a, a round teacup, and you have this round thing in front of you, and before the ride even starts, you can start doing this, and you start spinning like this. And then they start the ride, and you're spinning like this while you're spinning like this. And then you vomit. <laughs> that's why you need to accept Christ at the end of this sermon, because that's, you just need to be delivered from that. I don't know. But, but <laughs> all I'm trying to say is there are different ways to describe going round and round, Right? But the fact of the matter is, none of those rides ever really goes anywhere. Just back to where you started. Only you have less money in your pocket than you did before because you paid for your ticket. And that is the way it is in the lower story. 
Even at its best, you never really get anywhere. And sometimes the price of that ticket is extraordinarily and staggeringly high. It was high for Solomon, and it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he had so many wives, you had to categorize them by nationality. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. You know, God told him not to do that. God told him to be the husband of one wife. God told him not to store up wealth like gold, silver, or horses, and he's known for his wives, he's known for his stables, he's known for his wealth. How many? He had 700 wives of royal birth. That's princesses. And 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech. You know, Molech was an idol that you sacrificed little children alive by burning them alive. I'm not going to try to paint this as any kind of a pleasant picture. And that's why he's called the detestable God of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, same kind of sacrificing. The detestable God of Moab and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, you have not kept my covenant, my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, For the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Ecclesiastes is a search for meaning in the lower story. I wonder how many of us are searching for meaning in the lower story, in the circumstances of this world. The problem is that meaning or purpose isn't there. It's in the upper story. The upper story isn't about the things that God can give you in the lower story. 
like the prosperity gospel says, right? It's about God's presence in your life, and it's about God's plan for your life. Now, Solomon directed his God-given gift at cornering the market of the lower story, which he did better than anybody, chasing shades. And in the end, he had nothing to show for it. His family was a mess. His kingdom was divided. And eventually, everything he built, even the temple he built to God, came to ruin. You know, some historians up until recently and recent archaeology wondered if King Solomon had ever even existed at all. Solomon became the object of his own conclusion. Interesting thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is that the conclusion is at the very beginning of the book, not at the end. The conclusion is everything is meaningless. And he was the object of that. He was meaningless. The thing is, he knew better. His father, even with all of his shortcomings, did better because he pursued the heart of Almighty God. Solomon was more about what he could get from God than to be close to God. Have you ever heard this before? The person who dies with the most toys wins. How many of you have heard that before? The truth is, the person who dies with the most toys is dead. (laughs) Wins? Are you kidding? In my opinion, Ecclesiastes is the most depressing book of the entire Bible. And that's saying something. Because it's even worse than the book of Lamentations. You know the book of Lamentations is titled Lamentations. Which means incredible deep sorrow. Because at least Lamentations reminds us of the upper story. Look at Lamentations 3.22-24. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For His compassions never fail. Well, that's upper story. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can I get an amen? That's the upper story. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. Wow. Beautiful. So why in the world are we in this most depressing book of the Bible? Like, I could have done a lot of things today, Jerry. Why do I have to listen to this? Because it shows us that the pursuit of happiness in the lower story is an illusion. And you know what I think? I think a lot of us are doing exactly that. I think a lot of us are looking for happiness in the lower story. We're pursuing it in the lower story. We're saying, if I just get enough money, if I just get enough education, if I just get a better relationship, if I just get better connected, if there's just something else in the lower story, if I live in a nicer house, if I drive a better car, if I have a little bit more money in the bank, if I have a little bit better retirement portfolio, then I'll be happy. Nobody ever searched harder and went deeper in this than Solomon. And you're not going to find something that he didn't. The tragedy of of, of his life is a testimony for us to find our meaning, our worth, our identity, and our purpose in the upper story. The good life is a God life. 
I'm going to say it again. The good life is a God life. Everything else is carnival barkers and throwaway prizes. Let's apply this. Okay, looking across the board, as I scan this audience, all the rest of the audiences that are listening right now, how many of you, by show of hands, consider yourself young? Okay, it's good. If you consider yourself young, you really need this book. Look at Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble. Anybody my age or around my age or older than my age going, I I get the days of trouble. Like I do an assessment every morning. What is still working? I'm like on Apollo 13. It's like what on the spacecraft still works? Absolutely true. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. If you're young or consider yourself young, you can start right now. You can make the most of your life in the upper story. You can take advantage of your youth, your health, your energy, and your gifts to make the very most of your life for God. How many of you across all of our locations, ready your show of hands time, are middle-aged? It is so funny when I ask these questions. Nobody wants to admit anything. You need this book. If you consider yourself middle-aged, you need this book because you can wake up one day and find yourself thinking, is this all there is? And that's pretty disconcerting. You You can look at your life and you can say, you know what, I've spent years... Climbing the ladder of success only to find that that ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. We've all heard midlife crisis, right? Well, a midlife crisis can be a good thing if it leads to a midlife evaluation in the direction of the upper story. All right, I'm going to ask the question again. How many of you consider yourself a senior adult? Yeah, you get the discounts. If you're a senior adult, you need this book because often people get to the age where they qualify themselves as senior adults and they wonder if they're not needed or if they're useless. This book reminds us that your value is calculated in the upper story, not in the lower story. Not in other people's evaluation of you, but in God's. And it's incredible. You realize that your experience can teach your children, your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren and the church this incredible value of an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to me. For the long haul. You know, I can say things like this. I am young and now I'm old and I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And I say it with authority. And it's because of my age. Or their children begging bread. We have a certain amount of authority because of the experience of our lives. And we can utilize those experiences to make such a difference. Let me sum it up this way. It's time to get off the merry-go-round. 
and begin the great adventure through the high mountains and the deep valleys of God's glorious grace. His amazing grace. Everything isn't meaningless. Is it? Not when you're living in the upper story. We're moving to a time of decision. This is where the gospel comes rushing in because it is such a contrast between the lower story and the upper story. You think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross and from the standpoint of the lower story, doesn't that just completely fit? Meaningless? Man, this great man who is able to accomplish all these amazing things that everybody can see and experience, dies at the prime of his life at 33, an enemy of the state, executed horribly. But that's only in the lower story. He was doing something amazing. He was taking your sin, all of it, every bit of it, all your debt, taking it, allowing his Father in heaven to place it on his shoulders, saying, I'll be responsible for all they've done. And when he died on that cross, he said the Greek word that means paid in full. Let me ask you a question. Is there a lot of things you've done in your life that you need to say you're sorry to God for? There's a lot in mine. And is God going to take that apology? He will. If you come to Christ. Because He paid it all. So here's a moment where we realize that Jesus died, not for what he did, but for what we've done. That he was buried and that he rose again and he lives today. That is the upper story. That's the gospel message. And you can come to Christ and you don't have to be who you were anymore. All the answers that Solomon had could give him everything that this world could offer. And yet he missed the one answer that he needed most. And that you can have an intimate personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you've never come into that relationship, you can do that right now. You can do it today. You can't afford the ticket. You can't pay the admission. Jesus bought you the ticket. There's going to be somebody right over there by our baptistry that would love to talk to you about what that next step is. You can be baptized into Christ. Buried with Him. Raised to walk in newness of life. The Bible says that 
anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's gone. The new has come. What a, what a joyful, wonderful, hopeful thing. That only God can give you and he gives it to you through his own son. It's not meaningless. Not in the upper story. Many of you today are here and you've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Oh, but that doesn't mean that you don't struggle with the lower story. Some of you, you know what I'm saying. All of us at one time or another, we get lost in it. The cares of this world, they weigh us down. They break us down. And we don't see any way out. I mean, think about how many people are struggling, needing counseling right now. You know, Jesus said, he goes, when I leave, he said this to his apostles the night before he died. He said, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then he went on to say, I'm going to send you the counselor. I invite you to come up here in a moment, get down on your knees and have a little time with your counselor with your counselor, the Holy Spirit. Lower stories getting you down. It's breaking you down. It's grinding on you. You know what he'll do? He'll help you see the upper story again. He'll kind of reorient you to the person that God made you to be. He'll change you. I encourage you to consider that today. These steps will be open and there's plenty of room Hey, and you say, well, I can't get to the steps, so I don't need to come. Well, you know what? There's a second layer. There's a third layer. There's plenty of room. Would you consider that? Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I'm praying right now because we put all of these defenses up because we don't want to be made uncomfortable or feel uncomfortable. And I know there's a little bit of that right now, the idea of, well, I don't know if I should go up there or not, or my hair looks really bad when it's wet, or who knows what. I, I just pray right now, Father, you'll break through all of those defenses, all of those pretenses, and just see this child's human heart that just needs you so desperately. And I pray, Father, like little children, we would just run to be close to your son, Jesus. And I pray we find him here in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.